Well, if you have your Bibles, let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. Uh, so we continue to get into God's Word. I will tell you guys, I noticed an interesting thing. I was telling Bert about it. I don't know if a sociologist needs to come check out our church. Uh, but I went to pick up Country Lane this morning, and I noticed if you have a car of color, you park on this side of the church. And if you have a white car, you park on this side of the church. I had never noticed that, like, we have one car that is of any color. Howard's black one is over here. And I put a sign on it, say, hey, that's not, that's, those are over there. And we've got one, we've got like Zach's pick, Zach and Mary are the only white vehicles on that side. Every other vehicle over there is red or blue. It's like the hippies over there. And everything over here is white. It's really, I'd never noticed that before. That's really interesting that that just happens. That's so random. But anyway, so just think about that. When you go out, you can think, well, this is, our church is weird. Uh... All right, well, look at First look at Peter chapter 5, just as we continue to look through this word, this word of our God, uh, who is so good to, to bring, us, bring us together uh, this morning. But just last week, we sort of, we, so we started uh, moving through this section, starting really uh, in verse uh, 5, uh, down into verse 6, looking at the question of humility, uh, that we're to humble ourselves toward one another, uh, submitting to our pastors, as it said in verse 5, clothing ourselves with humility toward uh, each other, also uh, in verse 5. Uh, so we're supposed to humble ourselves toward one another, but we're also supposed to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. That God is supposed to be God in our lives. That He's supposed to be the one that, that we submit ourselves to. That there is a temptation to, in our hearts, make ourselves God to do what we want to do rather than what God calls us to do. And I'm sure that uh, as several of you talk to me uh, after church, that's a temptation for all of us. Anytime you read God's word and you go, uh, I, like I read that and I see what I'm supposed to do, but I don't know if I'm going to do that. That's a temptation for you to say, God, I think I'm going to be God today. Uh, I think I'm going to do what I say rather than what you say. Uh, but we've got to humble ourselves under God. So let's read more of what that humility looks like. Because you're not just done with the humbling yourselves under the uh, mighty hand of God. We'll look at, at that. But let's read first. First uh, Peter chapter 5. We'll read verses 6 through 11. Let's stand. Just in the honor of reading God's word. We've asked for God to show us wonderful things from his law. And we know that this every word you're going to read is a wonderful thing. Uh, and we pray that his spirit would show us just how wonderful. And the amazing thing about God's spirit is he shows us all the facets of that wonder throughout our Christian life. Like you're going to read this passage and some of you have read this 30 times in your life and you're going to read it again today and God's going to show you something new because that's how his spirit works as he grows us. So let's hear from our great God who we, we treasure. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time, he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who's called you, to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. 
Father, we come to you today and we pray that you would have the dominion forever and ever, not just in this world, uh, but in our hearts. And God, as, as we're going to see, we rejoice that that's exactly what you promised to do, that you will have dominion. You will reign over this earth and over us. And so today we take part in that advancement of your kingdom as God, you uh, continue to conquer our hearts for your glory and your name uh, and for our good. So, Father, uh, speak to us, grow us uh, in righteousness and justice. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. So uh, we sort of look at what it means to humble ourselves toward God. What, okay, we're supposed to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. What does that look like? And, and last week we looked at, we looked at two things. Uh, the first thing we saw is that humility toward God recognizes and believes, right? What God has said and done. That it says, humble yourselves under this. It says, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. That God has done all of this, everything brought up all the way back to 1 Peter chapter 1 with the great God doing all this salvation that needs to be blessed for what he's done for us, working through the questions of submission and suffering, all those things. If God has said this, if God has promised this, if he's done all these things, then we should be humble before him. And if you will remember what God has said, if you'll believe what he said, and if you'll believe what he's done, if you'll remember what he's done, it will grow in your heart's humility toward God. You'll realize that you're not God and that's a good thing. The second thing that we saw is we must recognize that God's hand is a mighty one. We saw what that might mean, both a positive and a negative in that. If you're suffering, it's good to know that God's hand is mighty. It's good to know that God's hand is a mighty hand that, that protects his people. But if you're refusing to submit to God, it's a scary thing when God says his hand is mighty. It's a th scary thing when he says, submit yourself under the mighty hand of God. But there's more to humility than that. This time we're going to look at, at another part of humility that's at the end of verse 6. Today we're going to look at humility toward God means that you don't try and exalt yourself. That you're not trying to exalt yourself. Your job is not to glorify yourself. Your job is not to make yourself high and lifted up and mighty and great. So look at what it says. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. See, at the heart of pride, at the heart of our pride is a desire to be exalted. It's a, like, what is our problem? When people treat us like we don't deserve to be treated, right? When we look at our life and we think, man, I don't think my life should be like this. I think my life should be better. I think I should, me, me, I, and it's normally about how we feel like we've been treated, whether or not we feel like we've been, and I know we wouldn't use this word, but whether or not we feel like we've been exalted. Well, we feel like we've been lifted up, made much of. There's a desire, just in these things that we've looked at, there's a desire to exalt yourself above others. That's why it's hard when God says to submit yourselves to your shepherds, when he says to humble yourself to one another, that's hard to do because we don't like to, we like talking about things like my way, what I want, who I am. That's why Peter had to call them to humility toward one another because it's, it's, we want to exalt ourselves against one another. We want to be the life of the party. You ever gone somewhere and it feels like no one noticed you? And you walk out of that going, uh -huh. why would no one notice me? I'm pretty awesome. And you will be offended, right? I know people who have left churches and been offended at churches because no one noticed them. Probably because everyone was busy noticing God, right? 
And so they'll, they'll go to a church, or and it happens everywhere, where we feel as if we haven't been given what we are due. And so in our desire, we have a desire to exalt ourselves. So God says, hey, look, you need to humble yourselves toward one another. We have a desire to exalt ourselves, though, even. It's not surprising to exalt ourselves above one another. What's, what's also not surprising. We have a desire to exalt ourselves even above God. For us to be treated as more important than God. Again, it's the same sort of thoughts, right? God, you should do things my way. God, I want my life like this. God, I want to be able to do this. God, I want a world structured in such a way that I'm the top focus of everything. God, why am I not at the top of every sort of pyramid in this world? Why am I finding out that I'm really just an insignificant part of your story when I thought I was a very significant part of my story? And that everyone else was just a part of my great story. And I'm finding out that I'm really just a minor part in your great story. We want to be exalted and in in pride, we'll try and take the job of exaltation into our own hands. We will try and exalt ourselves. And that's normally, as James warned us about last week, that's normally where the fights come from, right? That's where the fights and quarrels and all those things come from. Because of our passions, because we want to be, we want to be lifted up. We want to be made much of. Remember, this is the, the same passage that James is going to talk about in James chapter 4. That's the same worry going on there, this idea of humbling yourselves, this idea of resisting the devil. It's not surprising that when the devil tries to tempt us, that what he tries to tempt us with is pride. The same thing that he himself is, is this angel of light. And so this can be a good place, just as we even move into the question of what do we do with humility before God? This can be a good place of, you know, just recognition and, and repentance. We often want our lives to be about how great we are. And so even when we come to church, our struggle with worshiping God, our biggest struggle is, God, I have trouble worshiping you because I feel like this week you haven't made much of me. Because my life this week was tough. My life this week was difficult. This world that you made, yes, your world, right? That you made, I'm recognizing that. But in that, God, I, I want a bigger place. I, want a, I wanted a better story. I wanted this and I want that. And so here I am and it's supposed to be about you, God. But in my pride, the reason I can't worship you today is because God, I've wanted to exalt me all week long and you haven't done that. So I'm having trouble exalting you today. God says that it is his job to exalt us, not our job. And when we try to take exaltation into our hands, it will rob us of any true exaltation. And it'll rob us of the purpose of life, which is to exalt him anyway. The Bible says that our exaltation, our glory always comes from God. That's, that's, where, that's the only place that real glory can come from. Glory only comes from the top of the pyramid. And the only one at the top of the pyramid is God. And so real exaltation can only come from him. You try and exalt yourself, you're going to be like that foolish person who went to the dinner table and set themselves next to the host and then someone more important than them came in and everyone had to say, hey, you, move to the end of the table. That's where so-and-so sits. You try and exalt yourself, that's what's going to happen in your life. You try to make your life about you and God will remind you that your life is not about you and you, you, you'll, you'll miss out. On, on real glory and happiness and exaltation because all glory, all exaltation comes from God. We saw this in First Peter chapter 5. We just saw this just a minute ago when he's talking to pastors. He says, and when the chief shepherd appears, when the senior pastor appears, 
you will receive the unfading crown of glory. That it's at the appearance of the chief. He's the one who gives the, the crown out. You don't get, as pastors, you don't get crowns from other pastors. You don't get crowns as a pastor from how many people come to your Bible conference. You don't get crowns as a pastor. How many people attend your church? You don't, none of that is genuine exaltation. Everyone in this church could think that I was the berries, right? And be like, you know what? The best thing about this church is you. Uh, and I'd be like, well, we're in trouble. Uh, <laughs> or, you know what? I tell you what, you and Zach are just so perfect. They're just, I tell you. And we could suck on that glory. But that glory would not mean a thing. And if we sought glory like that, if that's what we wanted, if that's what we pursued was for people to think we were great. We would lose out on genuine exaltation. The only person who can exalt anybody is the Lord. And the Bible tells us that. When you look like Jesus, what did he say? The same thing. You try and exalt yourself when it's not the proper time. And that exaltation is going to go away because real exaltation comes from God. So we saw these passages before. But Luke chapter 14, verse 11. For everyone who exalts himself, what's going to happen? will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. You try and exalt yourself and you're going to find out that what the Bible has said all along, that pride comes before the what? The fall. And you start exalting yourself and think about how great you are and how not great everyone else is. And you know what's going to happen? A fall. You try and make this life about you and not about God. You try, you, look, The worst thing that could happen to you is for you to get the exaltation you think you want and get it from yourself. Because that's only going to lead to a genuine humbling. But if you humble yourself, God will exalt you. Same thing in Luke chapter 18, verse 14. I tell you this, this man went down to his house justified. Remember, this is the the question of the, of the, the, the Pharisee and the tax collector. He said, this man went to his house justified rather than the other for everyone who exalts himself will be humble. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. If you go around like that uh, Pharisee saying, man, I'm glad I'm not like these bad people. I'm glad I'm so much better than them. He says, hey, look, that's, that's, a, that's a problem sort of thought. Jesus, Jesus gave that as the example of someone who is, uh, who is exalting himself. Let God exalt you. Let God bring you praise. Let him bring you glory. Don't seek to glorify yourself. Don't think, to, don't think much of you. Spend your life thinking much of God, over and over, scripture repeats that God glorifies those who humble themselves. So if you want to be exalted, if you really care about exaltation, know that that comes in humility, not in seeking glory for yourself. If you want a life that brings you joy and happiness and puts you where you're supposed to be, which you're going to find out is actually a pretty great place. When you get to live as an image bearer of God, the pinnacle of creation, you want to be what you're meant to be in the pinnacle of God's creation. It's when you humble yourself. That's when you find life as it's meant to be lived. That's when you find real happiness, real peace, real glory. So scripture always says you want want exaltation, then humble yourself. Humble yourself. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 23. One's pride will bring him low. But he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. You be someone who is lowly in your spirit, who doesn't think much 
of themselves. He doesn't make life about themselves. But as we saw a few weeks ago, makes it about others. Seeks others before they seek themselves. Seeks God and his glory ahead of their own. And that's how you obtain real honor. James chapter 4 verse 10, like we talked about. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Humble yourself and he will exalt you. Try and exalt yourself and it brings humility. Humble yourself and God will exalt you. Or this passage in Isaiah 57, 15. I love this passage. I love the other ones too, right? You can't say that. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, right? Here's a recognition of who is the only one who is high and lifted up. Who is the only one who's truly exalted. Who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I guess who he is. I dwell in the high and holy place. You who are like stretching out, trying to get yourself there, trying to be there. That's where I dwell. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. The lowly, the contrite, that is who God exalts. And that's what we see here. God does promise exaltation in this, doesn't he? He doesn't say, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, because who are you to care about exaltation anyway? It's not about you, it's about me. He doesn't say that. He says, humble yourselves, under the, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that, at what? At the proper time, he may exalt you. God does promise here that he will exalt us. He promises that. Now, that's a future promise, right? It, it is going to happen. But when does he say is that future time? When is it going to be? At the proper time, right? In other words, you don't know when that's going to be. We don't know what the proper time is. That's our problem. If God said, humble yourself under my mighty hand and in two weeks, two weeks, I will exalt you. We might be able to do that. Like sometimes I think if it said two minutes, it'd be a struggle. But if, we had, if he had forecasted some sort of future ending, that in this many days or, or this many months or this many seconds, said the exaltation is going to come, but he doesn't. He, it's a matter of trust and faith. He says, at the proper time, he will exalt you. Some of our pride, some of the pride that we battle with is not wanting exaltation at the proper time, instead wanting exaltation on our time. So God, I'll tell you what the proper time is. The proper time is now, right? This is the proper time. This is when I need it. God, if you're gonna if you're gonna exalt me, if you're gonna if you're gonna bring me the honor that you promise, if you're gonna bring me the, the glory that is mine as your child, if you're gonna do all these things, you need to do it now. This is the proper time. Because I and here's where you see the battle and the pride. And sometimes when we hear pride, we go, that can't be me. I'm not prideful. And I don't want you to think of it that way. Because scripture says this is, a, this is a common battle. So pride is not just walking around like spiritual Scrooge McDucks, like thinking you're better than everybody else all the time. Pride is even in these desires. It says, look, look, trust me. Trust that my proper time is better than your proper time or my proper time would be your proper time. If the proper time is when you want it right now, it's, that's when it would happen. So if it's not happening right now, it's because it's not the proper time. And you've got to trust me more than you trust God. Or you have to trust me more than you trust yourself. 
You can trust me more than your own understanding of what's right and wrong, what's going on. That's the struggle. Is I, I've got to trust God's timing rather than my own. And if we thought that God was a better God than us, that'd be easier to do. But sometimes we're not so sure who would make a better God. And that's the pride. It's the same thing God has said in a passage like Galatians 6, 9. Well, he says, let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season, we will reap what? If we do not give up. So if you and I seek exaltation, if we seek for our suffering to end or for our submission to be over all these things, maybe we're submitting under a husband who's not a great husband. Maybe we're submitting under a king who's not a great king. Maybe it's under a shepherd who's not a great shepherd. Maybe it's under any of those things. Or maybe our suffering is, is or our submission is suffering, submitting to the world that God has given us. And it's a hard life and it's difficult. And we're looking at that and we're going, I want out from under this. And we're having to wait. And we're having to trust. And God says, look, don't grow weary of doing what's right. Don't grow weary of doing good. So there's going to be a temptation. So notice there will be a temptation even as you do good to grow tired of it. Faithful wife, there's going to be a temptation for you to grow tired of being a faithful wife. Faithful servant, there's going to be a temptation to you to grow tired of being a faithful servant. There's a faithful sheep. There's going to be a temptation you to be tired, grow tired of being a faithful sheep. You're going through suffering and you've been faithful and you've trusted God. There's going to be a moment where you're going to look at your suffering and you're going to begin to question God. And you're going to be tired of bearing under the burden that you have to bear. And you're going to want to throw it down. And you, you've, been, you've been doing the godly thing for so long. There's going to be temptation for you to look at that and say, I'm done doing the godly thing. I'm going to end this. Because bearing under, remember when we saw that in 1 Peter chapter 2? You're bearing under these things. There's going to be a temptation for you to say, I'm tired of bearing it. If I just let go, it'll be easier. Because we think this is harder than this. And so he says, look, don't grow weary of doing good because, what does he promise? In due time, you will reap. In the right season, the harvest comes. If what? If we do not give up. Some of us, we're bearing a burden and the temptation, whether it's a struggle in our own heart against sin, and we're fighting against that sin, and, and, we, and we're tired of fighting it. We want it just to be over, so if we just gave into it, it'd be so much easier if I just said what I wanted to say, if I just did what I wanted to do. That would be easier. Maybe we're dealing under suffering, and so that suffering is so hard to be godly in the midst of it, and every time the other person isn't godly or the situation isn't godly, we go, I just want to be able to be ungodly back. And to have to be godly in the midst of difficulties and hard times. And God says, look, if, if, if you don't give up, the harvest comes. But it comes in its season. I am not a farmer, nor the son of a farmer. I'm the son-in-law of a sometimes farmer, right? But I know how it works. I've figured this out. You can't go outside and tell the stuff to be done when you want it to be done. You can't tell it to grow when you want it to grow. You can't tell it to be harvest time when you want it to be harvest time. You can't. When's it going to come due? You can probably ask Frank, and he will tell you the day that it is going to come due. 
but he does not choose the day. He's shaking his head no, which is good. That reminds us, even after all this time, he still doesn't know. Still doesn't know. Because God knows, because it's his world. But those things only come due when the season is time. They come due in their time. So I think, I think, man, being a farmer is the best person to suffer as. Because you get a daily reminder of you, you harvest it early, you get nothing. Right? You harvest it when it's time. But when it's time, the harvest comes. And God promises here a harvest un- unlike the earthly harvest, because the earthly harvest cannot get enough rain. It cannot get enough. God promises that this one will grow. He promises that this one will reap a harvest if you do not grow tired of doing good, if you do not give up. It is our pride that makes us want to give up. It is wanting us to be exalted in our time rather than in his time. Trust that God has a better time than you do. Trust that every time you're looking at a situation and you just want to give up. Even if that situation is you. Even if that situation is your own struggles against sin. You just want to give up. You just want to go away. You don't want to talk to anybody. You're just, you're just packing it up. Even if, that, even if that situation is someone else bringing suffering into your life and you want God to end the suffering and end it now, remember, he promises that he will, but he promises it's going to happen at the proper time, the best time, in its season, not in your time. And what we need to do is trust him in that. In fact, if we're not trusting him in that, that's probably the reason that the season is extending. Right? Because he is teaching us to trust. He is teaching us, it is that stretching of ourselves. He is teaching, like, because because if he ended it, if he ends it at a week and you would have struggled at two weeks, it would be bad for you for him to end the suffering in a week. Because that wouldn't give in your, the weeds in your heart time to germinate. And sometimes God needs to give the weeds in our hearts time to germinate to show us what we're struggling with. And so when those weeds germinate, sometimes it's extended because he knows what's the best time for his name and for yours. And it is better for you to suffer and to struggle and to end up (sighs) leaning and trusting in him rather than in yourself than it would be for him to end the suffering before you had the chance to grow those muscles of trust in the Lord. And so remember that the next time you go through suffering and you just want it to be over. Remember, you can trust God. He promises he will exalt you at the right time. So if we recognize our, our pride, whatever our struggles might be, then we'll humble ourselves. We'll, we'll understand that God will exalt us. We, we aren't going to try and force glory on ourselves. We'll trust him. And that's the next thing. What will this humility look like? Ultimately, all of this is a question of trusting God. Humility is trusting in God. And so he says here, look, you've got to trust God with your anxieties. Casting all your anxieties on him. So what does it say? Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Cast. How do you do that? You cast. Casting. This is the the participle that tells you how to do the humbling yourself. Casting all, all of your anxieties, right? Some of them, not just the ones you're comfortable giving to him. All of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. That if you have an anxiety, if you're anxious about anything, you need to give that to the Lord. All of your anxieties. It doesn't, he doesn't want just the important anxieties. He wants all of your anxieties, all of your worries. There, there are certain types of anxieties that when we look at here that they could be struggling with. 
Remember what Peter's been talking about those two things of suffering and submission? Think about what anxieties could be could the first Peter church be going through? If it's suffering, there's anxiety about what's the outcome going to be of this, right? That's what we're anxious about. When we go through suffering, what we're worried about is what is the ruins going to look like when all this is done? What's the outcome going to be? Because we see the house teetering and falling and we see the bits and the pieces and we see ourselves being hurt. We see people we love being hurt. We see all these things happen and the anxiety is, God, you say this is going to end, but what's it going to look like at the end? If we're humble, then we won't hold firm to those worries. We'll tell God, God, I trust you with the outcome. We'll remember that he promises to take care of his people. Remember the, the, the story that he says, he's, he promises to what? He promises to take care of flowers and sparrows. And what does he say? Are you not more important than sparrows? If God makes sure the sparrows eat, and if he makes sure the, the flowers are decorated in finery greater than Solomon's, then he's going to make sure to take care of you. If God answers the prayer of anxious sparrows, he can answer your anxiety. So quit holding on to them. Quit worrying. Because you're holding on to them does no good. And we know that's what's so funny about when we hold on to our anxieties. We hold on to our anxieties knowing we can't do anything about it. That's why we're anxious. If we could do something about it, we wouldn't be anxious. But we're like, oh no, what am I going to do with this? And God's like, give it to me. And we're like, let me hold on to it. Are you, can you do anything with it? No, that's why I'm worried. Then why are you holding on to it? It's like when your kid grabs something hot or puts something hot in their mouth. And they're like, oh, it's hot. You're like, spit it out. And they're like, oh. And you're like, I got to stick your hand in and get it out of their mouth. That's how dumb we are with our anxieties. We take on these anxieties that he says, give to me and I will take care of them. And we're like hot potatoing the thing. And we do it like we're suffering while doing it. And he's like, cast it on me. Quit holding on to your anxiety. You're anxious about something? I'm worried about my kids. I'm worried about my family. I'm worried about my life. I'm worried about whatever. Give it to God and truly give it to him. Like we always say, I just gave it up to God while then spending the next 45 days worrying about it. Truly give it to him. Be like, God, you take care. Oh, I don't have to worry about my kids. God promises all these things about my children. I don't have to worry about my family. God promises if I'm this as a husband, I'm this as a wife, that he will take care of me. I'm worried about this. I'm worried about, look, trust the Lord. He promises he will take care of you. And you know that you can't. Take care of yourself. So why do you hold on to it? Pride. Foolish pride. Because it's pride that knows it can't do anything about it and it holds on to it anyway. If our struggle is suffering, that's what we'll struggle with. Trusting God with the outcome. If our struggle is submission, then our anxiety is about having to let other people lead us. That's scary. It's hard to submit to other people. It's weird to read a passage like Hebrews 13 and read that he says, these people are keeping watch over your soul. That's a weird thing to hear God say about someone else. And so it's hard in those situations to be like, God, I trust you that you've set up the church or the world this way. It's, it's hard to look at those things. It's hard to be a wife that, 
that wants to, that looks at her house and is looking, for example, at that, the example we saw in First Peter, where it's like, even if your husbands are disobedient to the word, it would be very hard to be a wife to submit to a husband that was disobedient to the word. It'd be very easy to go, I don't have to submit to you. It'd be foolish. I'll take care of this. Rather than saying, look, God says if I, if I do submit to you, that better things will come of that than if I, in my pride, think I can fix this. That's hard to do. It's hard to trust God in that. It's easy to take up those reins, especially in every one of those situations when God already warns that there's sinful pride in all of us to want to take up those reins anyway. When the temptation is already there as a wife to want to rule the house, when the temptation is already there as a sheep to want to be your own shepherd, it's very easy. It's going to be very easy to see an excuse to take up those reins. I'm sure warn us about those. So in submission, we've got to humble ourselves, recognizing that the reason we have a problem with letting someone else lead us or submitting to, to people is not ultimately about that person. It's like God talked about. It's ultimately about whether or not you trust God's leadership. And, and, and maybe that's our big problem, just as it was with suffering. Maybe it's not that we don't trust that person. Maybe it's that we don't trust God. Because if I did, I would trust how he set up the world. I would trust how he set up the church. I would trust how he set up the family. I would trust those things. If I throw off that submission, that, that under authority, hupotasso, if I struggle against that, my struggle isn't ultimately with that person. It's with the Lord. And I love how that gets to the heart of pride and anxiety. Because what the, the real issue is we don't really believe that God cares for us. That's our struggle. Is we don't believe God cares for us. If we did, we wouldn't fear the suffering that he brings into our lives, right? That's what it said in 419. Right? If anyone suffers according to the will of God, let them do what? Let them entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So you're suffering according to the will of God. God brings suffering into your life. If you trusted God and he brought suffering into your life, you would know that this God cares for me. I trust him. So if he's brought this into my life, I can trust him in that. If we trusted God, we wouldn't fear him putting others over our lives. We wouldn't fear the world that he's made and the way that he's made it. We wouldn't uh, cringe at that idea. We'd submit, not just to those people, but ultimately to the Lord. The Bible often encourages us to trust God with our worries. You've got worries, trust God. And this is, this is I, I think this is so important because we, so many times, this is one of those respectable sins of the church. One of the ones that people just say, I'm just a whatever type of person. I'm just an anxious bird, you know. I'm just a worrier. And, it, and you wouldn't say that about so many other sins, right? I'm just a murderer. You know? Uh, you know, I'm just whatever. You wouldn't say that. Our modern culture is trying to get you to be able to say that, but you would not say that. So the Bible tells us to trust God with our worries. Psalm 37, 5 and 6. The Bible knows this is going to be a struggle for us. So Psalm 37, 5 and 6, commit your way to the Lord and trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as what? As the noonday. Like sun in the sky. You're not going to get dusk level justice, right? Like you're not going to get justice. It's like, 
whoop, like people, oh, maybe I can see where God took care of you just a little bit there. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be noonday level. Just, I mean, look at, look at, trust God, commit your way to him, trust him and he will act. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God will act? If you did, then you would trust him. You would commit your way to him. You would say, God, here is my life. Lord, take it. Because I know that you will act. And what's he bring? He brings righteousness and justice. And I love that. Look at what is he promising there? He will grow you. You will be more righteous when this is done. He's going to bring forth your righteousness as the light. And he will make things right, just like the sun. Justice like the sun. Which tend to be our worries in situations, aren't they? What are our worries when we're going through difficulty? When we're going through something difficult, is this good for me? Is this going to be good for me? How is this going to be good for me? And he says, look, if you commit your way to him, he will act. And that means he will bring forth your righteousness as the light. He will bring forth justice. Which is the other question. Why, when you go through suffering or when you have to submit under someone, you go, why why are things so good for the bad person? Right? That's one of our struggles. Why is it going so good for them? And here I am trusting the Lord and it's hard for me. And so he comes and says, look, God will act. What's he going to do? He will grow your righteousness. He'll bring forth your righteousness as the light. And he will what? He will bring forth justice. And it'll shine like the noonday. God will act. He will bring forth the very things that you're worried about. How do you know? He promised it. And you know what else he's done? He's done it in Christ. Your righteousness? Christ. Justice? Christ. How can you be sure he's going to bring those little things in your life? Because he's already brought you the big one. He's already brought you righteousness. You're like, he'll bring forth my righteousness. I mean, before Christ, what righteousness is he talking about? And yet in Christ, you get the righteousness of Christ, and then he grows righteousness in us. So that we, his faithful people, when we go through suffering, we grow through suffering. You don't just go through suffering. God promises you grow through suffering. So if you're going, God, how is this going to be good for me? He says, I promise you that it will be. I've promised you and I've shown you. Will you trust me? Do you believe That I care for you. If you do, then you will commit your way to me. Whether that way is smooth or thorny and rocky. You will trust that you promise a good outcome for me. I love how that gets to the heart of those issues. Like Psalm 62, 8. Trust in him at all times, O people. At all times, cast all your anxieties, right? Trust in him at all times. Pour out your heart before God. He's a refuge for us. Are you worried? God doesn't say, if you're worried, quit worrying. Right? God's not, God's not, he's not like, just stop it. What does he tell you to do? He says, 
Pour out your heart before me. If you're worried, tell God. Tell him what you're worried about. Tell him your fears and then trust him. God, this is, and and the thing that that can help us with is that will often lead to repentance. Because as we're saying it, we'll see how silly it is that we worry about that thing. And we'll see that we can trust God in it. God, I'm worried about this and this and this and this. God, help me to trust you. That's sort of like the, I believe, help my unbelief. Pour out your heart to God. Pour out your heart to him and then trust him. He is a refuge for you. So trust him at all times, pour out your heart and then run to him. This is what I'm worried about. And then run to the one who can protect you from those very things. I love what Jesus says about anxiety. Matthew chapter six. Oh, there's no way I've only got through two pages. All right, Matthew chapter six. Verse 25, therefore, I tell you, do not, this is, this is, this is where we're going to see how anxiety is, is a common problem. Do not be anxious about your life. Command from the Lord, right? So if you're anxious about your life, that's not okay. If you're, you cannot, we cannot be anxious people. And when anxiety springs up, you need to kill it as quickly as you would lying, homosexuality, adultery, any of those things, kill it. It cannot be okay. That is not just who you are. There are no gay Christians and there are no anxious Christians. There are just Christians being obedient to the Lord, killing their sin. And that's what it says here. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. And here we get to it. Look at the birds of the air. This is why it's good to go outside. Because creation is a picture of God's care just overall, creation in general, and then your life specifically. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap. You go outside, you don't have to worry about, okay, here's this grass. Is the, wait, is, is the sparrow farming this? You know, these little sparrows scratching out and then getting some seed and plant. They don't do that. They neither, they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. So they're not, the, the sparrows aren't, you know, doing these things and building vats to make sure they're taken care of. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you what? Not of more value than they. So if God feeds them, if God feeds the sparrows, of course, he's going to feed you. And which of you? This is where the silliness of it. And which of you being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? I love that. Because like, look, God takes care of the sparrows and you already know you can't take care of yourself. So it's not like you kind of take care of yourself. You're like, you know, I do a pretty good job. And so it's really hard for me to trust that God can do a better job than me. You already know you can't do anything. So what are you giving up? And this is how we see the foolishness of pride. And how our hearts want to make us God and trust in us and how we've got to throw that aside and how this is a problem of idolatry, not just trust, because we know we can't add a single hour to our life by being anxious. And now what about clothing? What about your clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, 
Will he not much more clothe you, O you of what? Little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? Which I think is one of the most convicting verses in the Bible. Because what are we worried about? We're not worried about where's my meal going to come from, my next meal. We're not worried about where are my clothes going to come from so I'll have clothes to wear. We're not worried about, will we have something to drink tomorrow. We are worried about the most frivolous things that are not life and death, but are normally, are they difficult? Yes. But they're not even deadly like these. For the Gentiles seek after these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And what? And all these things will be added to you. I love how we memorize Matthew 6.33 and don't memorize all the verses in front of it that explain what Matthew 6.33 is talking about. Seek, seek first the kingdom. Seek God's kingdom, not your own. Is that not a question of exaltation? Seek, seek to make God's kingdom reign in your heart. Seek for his kingdom to be grown, not your own. And seek his righteousness and all these things, kingdom and righteousness and the other things, clothes, the food, all these things will be added to you. We have no reason. So Jesus is talking about anxiety. He says, look, we have no reason to be anxious. None. There's no reason for a Christian to ever be anxious. No reason. And you will make up, your heart will make up a reason. Satan, to steal as he's going to be talking about, and as James talked about, Satan will make up a reason in your heart to be anxious. Satan will, Satan will give you a reason that it's better for you to eat the fruit than not eat the fruit. Like in the garden, he wasn't like, okay, you got me. It's going to be bad for you. Right? What did he say? You can't trust God. He's just afraid you'll be like him, knowing good from evil. That's why he doesn't want you to eat. And when struggles come your way, your heart will begin to be anxious and say, your problem is that you can't trust God. That this isn't for your good. That the outcome is not going to be good for you or for your family or for this world. And so you will try and take it up yourself just as Eve ripped that apple off the tree and shoved it into her mouth. And then came the humility. And then after that pride came the fall. And we, so we've got no reason to be anxious. None. Every reason to trust our God. In fact, he says that, look, God will provide for you. And so that if you've got anxiety, what is that? Ultimately, anxiety is a lack of what? Faith. But he says in verse 30, to wrap it all up, right? What does he say? He's wrapping up this statement. He says, he says, God clothes them, which is day alive, thrown into the fire tomorrow. Will he not clothe you, O you of little faith? Anxiety is a problem of faith. It is a problem of trust. It is a problem of belief. Which I think helps us see why we need to kill anxiety. See, if I say it's a matter of trusting God, that seems almost like a reasonable battle, right? I'm trying to trust you, but I'm not. But if, you, if instead we word it, it's a, it's a matter of not believing God. Then all of a sudden it becomes like a serious issue, right? And yet that's what we see here. You do not have faith in God. You do not believe that he cares for you. 
So that's what the Lord says here. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. If you believe that God cares for you, then you will cast your anxieties on him. We can see our pride in that we don't trust God to answer. How is that pride? How is it pride to not believe that God's going to answer us? Jesus tells us how it's pride in Matthew chapter 7. He talks about asking God for things and thinking he's not going to give them to us. And so we cry out to God. We pour out our heart like Psalms told us to do in Psalm 62. We, we, we commit our way to him like it said in Psalm 37. We do all those things, but we're, we're afraid he's not going to do anything. We're actually tempted to believe that if we do that. So when we read those verses, there's parts of you that were tempted. When you read those verses about commit your way to God, there were whispers in your heart. He's not going to do anything. He's not. So Jesus warns about this, Matthew chapter 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil... Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your father who's in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? And I love that there's an exclamation point on the end of that. We ask our father for help and we're afraid. Not we're actually afraid that not only is God not going to do anything, we're actually afraid that God's going to do something wicked. That's what we're anxious about. That God is going to bring evil into our life. That God is going to destroy it, ruin it. That if I trust God, we, we, we've got this idea of God and his will that's so messed up. And we've talked about this before, that one, that God hides his will. And so here we are trying to do what's right. And God's like, hiding it all the time. You're never going to know. And then we're afraid that when our life is good, God is just waiting to knock our feet out from underneath us. So we've got kids and they're great and we love them and the Lord is blessing us and we're afraid that that's just because the Lord's about to kill them all. And you laugh, but the next time your family goes on vacation or travels to the store and you're not with them, but God is, how confident are you going to be that everything's going to be okay? Or do you think that that God has taken such good care of them, given you such a good relationship with them, love, all those things, and then to do that, all to then do something wicked. You've asked him for bread. Take care of my family. Protect them. Be with us. You've asked him for that bread, and you fear he's going to give you a stone. You fear that he's going to throw a stone right through the windshield of that car, that he's going to throw a stone through the great life that you've got and ruin it all. If you didn't, you wouldn't be anxious. Or you fear you're going to ask him for fish, ask him for sustenance. God, protect us, feed us, do these things. And he's going to give you a serpent. That's what Jesus says is really going on in our hearts. He says, look, if, if you who are evil know how to do good things to your kids, and if your kids asked you for this, you wouldn't say, okay, you want bread? Here's a stone. Ha, ha, ha. And if they were like, can I have a fish, daddy? You wouldn't be like, yes. And then serpent. You wouldn't, it seems ridiculous. You're supposed to laugh at that. Scripture wants you to look at that and go, well, that's just ridiculous. And he goes, yes. And yet that is somehow how you think I'm going to treat you. That's the ridiculous nature of anxiety. Not only is it prideful, but it's foolish pride. 
Because it is a pride that not only doesn't trust God, it's a pride that doesn't believe God. It's a pride that makes God less than he is. It's a pride that makes God less than you are. Because you wouldn't give your child a stone, but you think he might. You wouldn't give someone a serpent, but you think God might. And Jesus says, how can you be an evil think that about God? Who is, as Isaiah said, the high and holy one. Whose name is holy. I think it's helpful for us to see these things. To see the, the pride behind things like anxiety. Because it's helpful for us to see that the answer to anxiety is humility. Is ultimately it's a problem of pride, not even really of trust. Trust is getting to part of it. But why do you not trust? And that comes back to pride. You've got to humble yourselves. That at its heart, anxiety is a pride problem. And, and I say that because it doesn't feel that way. Anxiety feels like the opposite of pride, right? Anxiety feels like we're admitting our weakness. God, I can't do anything. But the real problem might be that we're ignoring or maybe even denying that he can. Because otherwise we wouldn't be anxious because he'd be holding on to it. Like, yes, you should be anxious if you're the one having to hold on to it because you can't do anything. But it wouldn't matter that you can't do anything if God's holding it. If you've given your worries to God, then by all means go, I can't do anything. And you go, well, I'm glad I don't have it. I don't have it anyway. God has it, and he can. He promises that he will. I've got no reason to be anxious, no reason to worry. We've got to trust God more than we trust ourselves. We've got to believe him more than we believe ourselves. We've got to think. And this is just pulling examples from Scripture, those examples we just read. We've got to think that God is not a liar. Don't think your heart is telling you a greater truth than he is. He doesn't care for you. He says he does. Give me your anxieties because I care for you. Your heart is going to say, but does he? But does he? Don't think he's untrustworthy. Don't think you can trust yourself more than you can trust him. Believe he is a good father who keeps his word. Believe he is better than you. That's the heart of anxiety. Those are the examples that Jesus gives when he says, don't be anxious. And he talks about all the reasons that we are anxious. Not believing him, thinking he's, he's wicked, thinking he's worse than us, thinking he's a liar, thinking he doesn't care. Thinking we don't matter to him, even though he says we do. So what can we do? Humility is humbling yourself under a mighty God who cares. And we'll look at that next week.